The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Single greatest witch hunt of all time. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundred, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show. Before his trial on civil fraud charges even began on Monday, Donald Trump insulted the judge and the New York attorney general and called the case a scam, a sham, and a witch hunt. The former president turned the Manhattan courthouse into his bully pulpit with photo ops and sound bites at every break. Inside the courtroom, Trump was on trial for inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars a year to do banks and insurers, something he denied repeatedly outside the courtroom. The banks got back their money. Again, there was never a default. There was never a problem. Everything was perfect. There was no crime. The crime is against me. Trump left for Florida during the lunch break on Wednesday, his departure duly noted by Attorney General Letitia James. I will not be bullied. And so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt, a fundraising stop. Joining me from the courthouse is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's covering the trial and has witnessed the so-called Donald Trump show. Tell us about it, Pat. So it's been quite a spectacle. The entire courthouse was cordoned off with barricades and streets were sealed off and the press was basically held in the courtroom hostage until President Trump came and went. We couldn't leave during break. He would come out repeatedly and literally a foot outside the front door of the main entrance of the courtroom, he would hold a press conference. And basically make all kinds of comments. He would call the New York Attorney General's lawsuit a quote-unquote scam and that she's a scam artist and say kinds of unflattering things about everybody and comment about the quality of evidence and how he has beautiful properties, that it should have never been made public because it's a privately held company. But now that everyone's seen how much money and the value of his assets is, they should be very impressed. So it's quite bizarre what you're watching as a reporter who normally knows that no one comes out and makes comments a foot outside the door and, and no one would probably get away with it either. But he has until finally he made some comments, posted them on Truth Social, sort of suggesting that the judge's law clerk, who is advisor on the law, was basically a girlfriend of your Senator Charles Schumer. After that happened, the judge issued a gag order that no one was going to be posting things on social media about his staff. Tell us about the opening statements and how the attorney general's office sort of laid out its case. 
You know, it's not a criminal trial. There's no smoking gun and drama and blood and guts and witnesses crying on the stand. This is a very dry civil trial that has to do about the valuation of assets. And it's also a bench trial. So everything is sort of at a higher plane. It's not for the common man who might be sitting on the jury. It's basically being told to the judge who's already made a ruling finding Trump liable for fraud on one of the seven claims. So they laid out their case. They basically assert the same thing that they allege in the lawsuit. And I'll give you one example. Seven Springs, which is in Bedford, New York, and it's a beautiful piece of property and it's wooded, but apparently there were easements on the property because it's protected wilderness. So they could not develop, but yet the Trump companies had assessed the value of this property, and they had said there were seven mansions, each worth $35 million. So they valued this seven springs at $161 million. And the New York Attorney General today was asking Jeffrey McConney, wait a minute, there were no houses there, yeah. So this is like, it's for 10 things. And they still assess it as $161 million, even knowing that they could never put seven mansions on that property. And in the defense opening statements, did they make arguments about valuations that the judge already rejected in his order, recall them fantasy rather than reality? Yes, a lot of it. The judge has already sanctioned Trump's lawyers for repeating arguments that he's already rejected. And the judge would interrupt them and say, I've already rejected that argument, and they would continue. I always tell my friends, you know, court isn't as dramatic as you see it on TV. You know, <laughs> lawyers, you know, most of the time they behave themselves and there's no melodrama. But in this case, it seemed like his legal team was basically playing for the audience of one who happened to be sitting there as the former 45th president of the United States. And during the witness testimony, were there several tense moments or dramatic moments? There's been several moments where there's almost the drama that you don't expect, the histrionics you don't expect, the play acting you don't expect. And there's been a little bit of that from the defense table. You know, at one point, Donald Bender is the former Mazars accountant, longtime accountant for Donald Trump's companies. He would submit these statements of financial condition, and he was basically relying, as is typical, on papers and submissions put forward by the Trump organization. He said, we don't go and drill down and find out if the numbers are accurate. We rely on the client to give us accurate information. So Trump's lawyers were basically cross-examining him, and it's like, when did you stop beating your wife type questions? And the judge interrupted one of the Trump lawyers and said, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Bender is not on trial here. And they said, we vociferously object. And there were four lawyers sitting at the Trump table, and all four of them stood up, I object, I object, I object, I object. And the judge is, you know, your objection is noted. And he basically said, who are you playing for? Are you playing for the audience, the media? What is this for? Because, you know, it was way out of bounds from what you expect a typical civil fraud trial. And people misbehave and people get emotional. I can understand that. But it was a little unusual. And there was another time the same witness, Donald Bender, has a Brooklyn accent and he tends to mutter and drop his voice. So we're straining to hear in this very large courtroom and he wouldn't speak into the mic. And one of the lawyers for Trump stood up and, and said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, could the witness speak into the microphone? 
And Trump is very animated, and he says, I can't hear. I can't hear him. And, you know, it's kind of unusual that the defendant would just shout it out in the middle of a courtroom. And then Trump started mugging like, you know, I don't know, I can't hear a word he's saying. And then he started pointing at his ear. So there's been this sideshow, you know, between the security that's extraordinary for a courtroom where you're held hostage and you can't get up to leave until he leaves. And then the defendant is standing outside for 10 minutes and having a press conference, and you can't leave until the security says you can leave. Is Trump going to testify? Oh, yes, he will testify. Now, that was a surprise, but Tish James wants him to testify. Originally, he took the fifth like 400 times or so before he got sued. And then he got sued. And as you know, June, if you invoke the fifth, the judge can take an adverse inference over your refusal to answer. It can be counted against you as like a default that you've not responded. So therefore, I'm going to find against you. So it wouldn't have helped Trump if he had taken the fifth. So he did get deposed. And we have some 500 pages of his deposition. So now she wants him on the stand. She's going to call Eric Trump. She's going to call Donald Trump Jr. And that's later on in the trial. Next week, we're expecting Ellen Weisselberg, who is the former longtime chief financial officer for Trump. And as we all remember, he pleaded guilty in August of 2022, and he went to prison for, I think, like two months, three months' time after being convicted of tax fraud. And Pat, is Donald Trump's New York real estate empire really at stake here? Well, it's still up in the air because when the judge issued a summary judgment motion two weeks ago, he was basically suggesting to dissolve the LLCs. And that was not what the New York Attorney General was asking for. So also, in this case, James said he overvalued assets and underpaid. So she is seeking at least $250 million in damages from Trump. So the judge is going to issue a bench ruling at the end of the trial. And on Friday afternoon, an appellate judge refused to delay this trial while Trump appeals that summary judgment ruling. But he did put that ruling, which could strip Trump of some of his marquee properties, on hold. Thanks so much for giving us an inside look at the trial, Patty. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I had a duty. I had a duty to all of our stakeholders, to our customers, uh, our creditors. I had a duty to our employees, to our investors, and, and to the regulators in the world uh, to do right by them, to make sure the right things happened at the company. And uh, clearly, I didn't do a good job of that. Um, clearly, I, um, I made a lot of mistakes or, or things I would give anything to be able to do over again. Um, I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. Sam Bankman-Fried took responsibility for the stunning collapse of his multi-billion dollar FTX crypto empire in a sort of apology tour last November, portraying himself as a well-intentioned, perhaps hapless chief executive, someone who made terrible mistakes but never knowingly committed fraud. 
Manhattan federal prosecutors didn't buy it and charged him a month later with orchestrating a massive fraud and bilking investors and customers out of billions of dollars. Now Bankman Freed has to try to convince a jury that his crypto empire wasn't built on fraud. Joining me is Joshua Neftalis of Palace Partners, a former prosecutor in the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. In opening statements, the prosecutor painted this picture of Bankman Freed as calculating a criminal mastermind who used investor deposits as a personal bank account. What does the prosecution have to prove here? The prosecution's job is actually, I think, simpler than all of us think. They really just need to show that Bankman Freed lied to his investors, lied to his customers, and stole the money. So it may take a long time. There may be a lot of documents and testimony, but in the end, it's a case about lies, greed, theft. They want to talk about the crime as a crime of embezzlement, misappropriation, and lies. They want to avoid getting into the nuances of crypto, how the technology worked, and getting the jurors lost or bored. Now, that may be a strategy the defense moves to because they want to make this sound complicated and something that got out of control. So Bankman Freed's lawyers in opening statements said the prosecutor had portrayed their client as a cartoon villain rather than the math nerd he truly was, and that Sam didn't intend to defraud anyone. There was no theft. What does their opening tell you about their defense strategy? I think they're setting up what is often the fight in a white-collar case, which is, did the defendant intend to do what happened? The facts are probably not going to be too much in dispute. Where did the money go? How is it used? The question is, as the defense is setting it up, did he intend to do something wrong? Did he think he was committing a crime? And I think what they're, we're saying here is he didn't intend to do anything wrong, and the government is exaggerating by, as I said, painting him as some cartoon villain. They're stretching, and they're asking the jury to sort of hold judgment as to what happened and say the government is really not giving you a full picture. Three of his top executives have pleaded guilty to fraud and agreed to cooperate, including his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who ran the crypto hedge fund, Alameda Research. And she's expected to be the state's star witness. The prosecutors portrayed her as Bankman Freed's closest confidant, while the defense appeared to try to shift the blame to her, saying that, you know, he urged her to hedge their exposure to further losses, and she just didn't do it. How much does the prosecution's case depend upon Ellison? I don't think it rises and falls on Ellison. I think what the government is doing is using all three of these cooperating witnesses to corroborate what I expect the documents, emails, the Twitter posts, bank records will show, that the stories of these cooperating witnesses, including Ellison, match up with what the documents show. I think the drama will be the cooperating witnesses. It's obviously a lot more interesting to hear from live witnesses who are in the mix, so to speak, than to have someone walk you through how the money moved. How will his romantic relationship with Ellison play in either in the prosecution's direct or the defense's cross? So I think the government's going to try to exploit that by saying this is someone who was as close as they get to the defendant. And that's the type of person you commit a crime with. You don't commit a crime with a random person on the street. You do it with someone you trust, including a girlfriend. And that's how you know that she was in on it and she's telling you the truth. The defense, as you said, is going to try to shift the blame and say, this really wasn't Bankman Freed's fault. This was his girlfriend who is now trying to get a good deal and shifting the blame to him. And she didn't follow his instructions, the hedge. So the debate's going to be, who's telling
telling the truth? Is it the government's portrayal as she's an honest broker of the facts, or is it Bankman Freed trying to impeach her story and saying she's leaving out the fact that Bankman Freed had given instructions which were apparently ignored in his telling? The biggest question, as always in criminal cases, is whether the defendant will take the stand. Bankman Freed is not like other defendants in that he talked and talked and talked before and after his arrest. So he's got a lot of explaining to do if he gets on the stand. But do you think he's the type who may want to take the stand? I think he's going to take the stand. And I think he's more likely than the average defendant to take the stand. As you mentioned, he's talked a lot. And the government has a lot of material apparently to work with. So he may be tempted to try to explain what he meant. The government and the witnesses they call are going to say that the evidence shows that he intended to commit a crime, and Bankman-Fried may be tempted, and it may be a good strategy to get up there and say, listen, as his lawyer said in their opening statements, this company went from zero to a million in a couple of years. They were building the airplane in the air, and he's going to need to explain why that means that mistakes were made, but he didn't intend to do anything wrong. You know, I wonder if at some point it looks like everyone got a deal except for him. So might it seem to the jury like, well, he's the only one taking the blame for everything? The defendant will certainly argue that. And I think that's one of the things that the government needs to deflect. The defense, I expect, will argue, listen, everyone here is pointing the finger at him. It's not fair for him to take the fall. Another line of defense, which you referred to earlier, is to put the blame on the collapse of the crypto industry. In opening statements, his attorney said that the rise and fall of FTX mirrored the wider crypto industry. And this case, in many ways, is about crypto from 2017 to 2022. So you think they'll try to shift the blame there? Yes, I think in a number of ways. What you alluded to earlier, which is, is he being asked to carry the bag for the fact that the market collapsed? Is that unfair? And second, trying to argue that the rules were being written for cryptocurrency as the business was growing and as this crime allegedly took place. So it's not fair to say he committed a crime or he didn't intend to because there were no rules. And then the third is sort of the, I asked other people to do things and they didn't listen to me. And that's how a growing business, including in cryptocurrency, works. And the strategy will be to confuse the jurors, or at least one of them, as you said, to just try to hang the jury. I don't think this is a case the defense lawyers are thinking an acquittal is likely. I think that they're going for a hung jury. Prosecutors have these millions of pages of digital evidence, texts and emails and snippets of computer code, and they have the three witnesses who turned state's evidence. And so it seems like such an uphill battle for Bankman Freed. So you think that the best he could hope for would be a hung jury? Yeah, I mean, I think trying to convince 12 people you didn't do it is much harder, obviously, than convincing one person that there's a doubt. And when you have that much evidence, you are really playing to the lowest common denominator there as opposed to the government, which has this huge burden of convincing 12 people that the defendant is guilty. And that's why I think the government will pursue sort of a clear narrative and the defense will try to make this about the confusing world of crypto. Potential prison term, we're hearing more than a century of convicted on all charges, but what's a more likely sentence here? There's something called the sentencing guidelines, which is an advisory guideline range Judge Kaplan will have to consider. If the defendant's convicted, I imagine his guidelines will be life in prison. The reality is that getting that much time is very rare. Sort of Bernie Madoff is the closest analog in that regard, and that's just sort of a different type of crime. It's a Ponzi scheme as opposed to sort of an embezzlement case. It's hard to predict. It really depends on whether he testifies and if he lies. The danger there is 
he could enhance the argument that the government would have that this is someone who needs to be punished. He didn't just defend himself. He got in front of a jury and lied. And that could really put his exposure higher. And how important is it to the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office to get a conviction here? It's obviously important. I mean, Damian Williams is the U.S. attorney. He's a friend and he's a great prosecutor. And I would say he treats all of his children equally. But this is clearly an important case because of the press attention and because of the deterrent effect that it could have in the industry. So I think it's important they win. But I think that the government always wants to win because they bring cases that they think are worthy of prosecution and they think that a conviction is the right result. Here, there's a little bit of a microscope because of the the press attention. So I think that adds a little bit of pressure for everyone. There's certainly a lot to watch in this case. Thanks so much, Josh. That's Joshua Neftalis of Palace Partners. And you can always hear the latest about what's happening at the Sam Bankman Freed trial by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, liberal and conservative justices appear to agree on something. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more. CutterEconomicForum.com. The fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was at stake in a case this week asking the Supreme Court to declare its funding system unconstitutional. But justices across the ideological spectrum seem to be struggling with the argument challenging the agency. I don't understand. We can't just suddenly decide that things are troubling without some kind of legal reference point. I'm sorry. I'm trying to understand your argument that I'm a a total loss. Uh, The word perpetual, I'm having trouble with. Is it like an intelligible principle of of money spent? I mean, I think we're all struggling to figure out then what's, what's the standard that you would use. Unlike most federal agencies, the CFPB doesn't rely on the annual budget process in Congress. Instead, it's funded directly by the Federal Reserve. But Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger told the justices that the CFPB was indistinguishable from many other federal agencies, including ones that date back to the country's founding. And both liberal and conservative justices seem to agree with that. Here are Justices Elena Kagan and Clarence Thomas questioning the attorney representing the trade associations challenging the agency. Annual line item appropriations were some appropriations, but um, massively not all appropriations. So you're just flying in the face of 250 years of history. I get your point that this is different, that it's unique, that it's odd, that they've never gone this far. But that's not having gone this far is not a constitutional problem. Joining me is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Tell us about the question in the case. It's based on the appropriations clause of the Constitution? The appropriation clause in the Constitution is situated in Article 1. It's one of Congress's great powers to counteract any kind of presidential overreach because the executive branch can't do anything unless Congress gives it the money to perform certain functions. And the clause itself says that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations by law. And the question that was raised in the case is, does appropriations by law imply 
every year appropriations? Does it imply a strict amount of money? Because in this case, under the 2010 law that created the agency, Congress gave it an open-ended funding mechanism, which would actually be drawn from another agency, the Fed, and the amount of money that the CFPB could use the max was 12% of the Fed's budget. So the argument was this is somewhat of an unusual appropriations decision. The fact that Congress decided what the funding mechanism means, is that enough? And that's what the debate really was about. And both sides had a hard time finding some kind of line to draw to distinguish permissible congressional appropriations from impermissible ones. Justices on both sides seem to be generally confused by the arguments by former U.S. Solicitor General Noel Francisco on behalf of the trade associations. And understandably, because they were searching for some kind of intelligible principle that they could use in order to side with those attacking the CFPB. And there was no intelligible principle. I mean, the former Solicitor General reached out for some factors that there's no real cap of how much money that can be spent. And that's not exactly true, but I understand what he was saying. There's also no time duration, meaning that Congress doesn't act. The agency receives this money year after year. And finally, it's true that this case is different because another agency distributes the money as opposed to Congress directly. But this former Solicitor General couldn't say which one of these factors was the most important. He basically said, well, this is sui generis. All three of these things are going on in this case. He also added the subsidiary point that there's no sort of market check on what the CFPB does. They can just keep getting more and more money and nobody will be upset by it because it's hidden through the Fed. And the justices said, well, where's the line? How do we apply this in the future? Give us some kind of understanding about which is the most important point, because if we take one strictly, the entire country will fall apart because Congress has been giving this kind of appropriation to one form or another, one of these factors has been present in countless appropriations throughout history. Also at stake is really every regulation and enforcement action the CFPB has taken since its beginning, and organizations representing the mortgage industry, housing industry, and realtors warn the court of the potentially catastrophic consequences of a broad decision, saying that it could set off a wave of challenges and the housing market could descend into chaos to the detriment of all mortgage borrowers. The actual challenge was to a payday loan, and if the court focused only on knocking down the payday loan rule, then the markets would not be rattled. But the concern is real is, what's the remedy going to be? It's hard to conceive of what the court could do if it found this appropriations defect. Would it make up an appropriation from Congress? Would it say the entire statute is unconstitutional and send it back to Congress to decide what to do? And if they did that, what's going to govern the mortgage industry in the interim? And that was the concern. Now, the good news is that no justice during the Solicitor General's argument asked her what she thought about the appropriate remedy. That Mm -hmm. might be another signal that the court is not going to hold this unconstitutional. There was some discussion later with the challengers about what remedy they seek. But it's very difficult to craft a remedy without roiling both the mortgage and the credit markets, not to mention jeopardizing lump sum appropriations to other industries and so forth. The decision the Biden administration was appealing from here came out of the ultra-conservative Fifth Circuit from a panel of Trump appointees. And this was a novel argument, wasn't it, to base this on the appropriations clause? Yeah, I sensed that the court 
maybe moderating slightly and that it understands that because of the signals that is given in past cases, there are lower court judges who are becoming more and more adventurous as the ones in the Fifth Circuit. And there may be a residual feeling, not in all the justices, but in some, that that just goes too far, that you have to have some kind of principled decision backed by history, which in other contexts is very important to the court. And this simply doesn't exist in this case. So it seems relatively clear, though not for sure, of course, that the court will rebuff the Fifth Circuit, saying that it went just too far, because it'd be incredibly difficult to craft an opinion that wouldn't jeopardize countless other agencies. I mean, just give a couple of examples. The post office gets to enlarge its budget depending upon what it brings in with postal fees, as does any federal agency that relies upon permit systems. And, you know, the customs office was structured that way as well. And the Congress has made sort of perpetual delegations to fill Social Security checks every year, and it doesn't have to re-up those every year. So each of these factors that the challengers raised exist in many fundamental statutes. So it's very difficult, and the court is aware that if they try to draw a line, it may jeopardize the very basics of executive branch government. This is one of several cases coming before the court this term that challenge agency authority, you know, attack on the administrative state. Do these CFPB arguments indicate that the conservative justices might not go as far as conservatives who are against big government might want, or is it just based on the facts of this case? Well, the court ushered in all of these cases by signaling that it was re-examining the very sort of accepted basis of the administrative state that's existed in some ways for 75 years, in some ways since our nation's history. So the court has invited these kinds of challenges. And I think now that so many challenges are taking place, and courts like the Fifth Circuit are chomping at the bit to pare down the authority of executive branch officials, the court is going to have to make a tough call about where to draw the line, even though this case would have had tremendous significance, and still could, if the agency loses. There's another case that's pending that hasn't been set for oral argument yet, the Jarkissi case, which itself has incredible seeds of doing great mischief to the administrative state, because there they both raise a non-delegation argument, which would limit the authority of agencies to interpret broad congressional statutes in ways that they have to every day. But the other argument given is that agencies can no longer go before agencies, tribunals, to bring most enforcement actions, but rather have to proceed in court with a jury trial, which would take an immense amount of time and money and lose the ability of an expert tribunal to understand the facts of a case. So if those arguments are upheld by the court in that Fifth Circuit challenge, that would be, again, a huge tectonic shift, the loss of agency flexibility and power. Well, the CFPB survived the last time it came before the court, and it appears it's going to survive again. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we're going to take a closer look at the Fifth Circuit and the pile of cases it has before the Supreme Court this term. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, 
Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. An outsized share of the Supreme Court's biggest cases this term will come from the ultra-conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, whose far-reaching rulings on federal regulatory power, guns, and social media are proving impossible for the Supreme Court to ignore. Here's former U.S. Solicitor General Gregory Gar's take on the Fifth Circuit. Some people have said it's sort of the Supreme Court versus the Fifth Circuit. It's interesting. I mean, the Fifth Circuit is now the most conservative circuit among the many. And, you know, the kind of question that all these cases present is whether the Fifth Circuit has got out ahead of even the U.S. Supreme Court today in terms of how conservative it is and whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court feels as though it has to rein it in a little bit. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, just how conservative is the Fifth Circuit? It's unquestionably the most conservative federal appeals court in the country. Twelve of its full-time judges are Republican appointees, and only four are Democratic appointees. And six of those Republican appointees are appointees of Donald Trump. And, you know, they include some justices who are really trying to make a name for themselves with some really far-reaching rulings. And so it's kind of consistently the place where conservatives go when they are looking to push the law in a certain direction. Tell us about the Trump appointees on the Fifth Circuit, because what seems unusual about them is they're not only conservative, but several of them made statements before they became judges that staked out very conservative positions on issues like abortion and gay marriage. Yeah, so there's also one who, while on the bench, has made some really remarkable statements. That's James Ho. He's described abortion while on the bench as a moral tragedy and written that if there's too much money in politics, it's because there's too much government. And then there's some other judges that really drew a lot of controversy when they were nominated. A guy like Corey Wilson, who had written that gay marriage is a pander to liberal interest groups. Another judge, Stuart Kyle Duncan, who has written a lot of things in opposition to LGBTQ rights. And he was a judge where protesters shut him down, wouldn't let him speak at Stanford Law School. So he's very much a lightning rod. The Fifth Circuit hasn't been faring that well at the Supreme Court. To me, it's taken the position the Ninth Circuit used to take, where it was the most reverse circuit for so many years. So tell us how it's done in the past year. Not very well. So in the last Supreme Court term, in seven of nine cases, the court decided it at least partially or largely reversed the Fifth Circuit. And the way it's different, just to go back to the Ninth Circuit, the way it's different is the Ninth Circuit had a well-deserved reputation back in the day as being very, very liberal. And the Supreme Court, even when it wasn't as conservative as this court is, would say, no, we're not going to let you do that Ninth Circuit. Here it's a case where the Fifth Circuit is trying to sort of push the envelope even beyond where the conservative Supreme Court has gone. Do some of their decisions seem like decisions that the Supreme Court almost has to take? Yeah, so a number of the cases the Supreme Court has this term are cases where the Biden administration is appealing. And they're cases where the Fifth Circuit struck down something that 
either an administrative agency or Congress did. So one example, there is a law that says that people subject to a domestic violence restraining order can have gun rights taken away. The Fifth Circuit said, nope, that law is unconstitutional. The Biden administration came up to the Supreme Court, and really in that sort of situation, the court almost has to take the case. We'll have to keep a scorecard for the Fifth Circuit this term. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.